This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. There's so much going on in the world right now and in Palestine. We're not going to have time to talk about everything. Antony Blinken's in China trying to repair relations. The apartheid prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, just announced within the last few hours that they're going to move forward with the judicial realignment, basically, that has got the entire world, including the United States, condemning the apartheid state of Israel for. In addition, the United States has been condemning Israel, together with the United Nations and the EU, against their announcement of 4,000 additional illegal colonial settlements in the West Bank. They're going forward with that. So that is a backdrop. We are not going to be talking about any of those issues. We're going to be talking about uh, a British-Israeli historian is claiming in a new memoir that the Mossad carried out bombings to drive out uh, Iraqi Jews to hasten the transfer of Iraqi Jews to Israel. Rather remarkable story. And, you know, kind of uh, in a bizarre twist, uh, we're going to talk about the, and I, I know you heard about this, the, the Israeli dish, the national Israeli dish. I'm sure you know what that is, Jamal. It's falafel. So we're going to be confronting that uh, crazy notion in a minute here. But before we get to all that, we're going to watch an interview that you did with award-winning journalist Aoud Kutab, who's going to discuss his recent article in Al Jazeera, making the argument that the United States should not grant Israeli citizens the visa waivers because of its uh, the way in which it treats Palestinian Americans and Palestinians in terms of their visas coming to the United States, a blatantly discriminatory process. So we're going to hear from you and uh, Daoud first before we get to these other stories. Yeah, let's watch the interview with Daoud Kutab. When Americans fly to Israel, they are screened by Israeli immigration staff before they can enter the country. Palestinian Americans visiting their homeland and family and other U.S. citizens are often ushered to side rooms to await a decision. They are interrogated and must relinquish their cell phones and laptops for inspection. At this point, visitors are told they can either enter Israel or not. If not, they are escorted to a plane and deported back to the country of their origin. The reasons U.S. citizens are refused entry could be simply being of Palestinian origin or past comments critical of Israel on social media or other publications. Israel refuses to be held accountable to the United States for any entry denial decision. Now, in spite of this discrimination towards U.S. citizens, Israel wants its own citizens to be granted a visa waiver giving them carte blanche to enter and depart from the United States. It wants their preferential treatment with no guarantee they will reciprocate with U.S. citizens. In June 14 article in Al Jazeera, the U.S. should not give up protecting its own citizens just to present another political gift to the Israeli government. Dawood Kutab explains why approving a visa waiver for Israelis is tantamount to the U.S. government approving of the ongoing prejudice towards U.S. citizens by Israel. Dawood Kutab is an award-winning Palestinian journalist 
and the former Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. Welcome to Arab Talk, Dawood. Thank you. Welcome back. <laughs> you weave your article around the experience of your Palestinian-American cousins, the Awads, when they set out to visit Jerusalem. People that have not had to undergo the possibility of being refused entry to Israel don't understand what this entails. Explain the ordeal and uncertainty the Awads undergo every time they want to come to visit their family in their ancestral homeland. Well, Jamal, for a while, people thought that if they had an American passport, they can flash it at any entry point, certainly in a country which is a, a major ally of the U.S., and then they would be allowed in without any problems. Well, uh, Americans of Palestinian origin, American Muslims, American Blacks, Americans of Asian origin are profiled. And uh, the profiling is an illegal act that the Israelis apply by stereotyping entire nation, entire community as being susceptible to being dangerous. They don't base it on information. They don't base it on the fact that their eyes were shaking or that they were, they looked like they were terrorists. They just say, because you are of Palestinian origin, because you are Muslim, because you are black, whatever, uh, you have to be uh, screened much further. And so uh, the moment that the passport control officer notices your background, where you were born, what your religion you belong to, the skin color, they apply racist uh, methodology by separating you from the rest of the population. This is a violation of the rights of Americans. Americans need to be treated equally. Americans belong to a country that applies the constitution where everybody is equal. But in Israeli eyes, if you are of Palestinian origin, if you're of Arab origin, if you're black, you're Muslim, you automatically are in a danger zone. You're, you're part of a dangerous population and must be treated. Even though you were checked when you came on board, you're, uh, you went through metal detectors, you flew you know, 12 hours, <laughs> and um, there is no danger in your entering, but because you are of Palestinian origin or Muslim origin, you are uh, uh, you know, searched, you're questioned, and in many times you're turned back. You're not allowed in. Uh, even though you belong to a country which is the biggest more biggest supporter of the state of Israel. Now, every time we've complained about this problem, the Israelis, uh, the Americans have said, we have nothing to do with this. This is a sovereign country, and sovereign countries have a right to decide who can enter their country. Well, now the tables are reversed. The Israelis want to be treated. They want to have a waiver to enter the U.S., and this is an appropriate time to apply what the U.S. applies to all the countries. We, visa, visa waivers are applied to, I think, 49, 48 countries around the world. And there is certain conditions. One of them is that they should have a rejection rate of less than 3%. And another is the reciprocity. You cannot apply, uh, you cannot grant a visa waiver to Israelis and, and let them enter when Americans are treated in a discriminatory way. So if you want your Israeli population to enter the U.S. without a visa, you need to apply this to Americans, not only at the airport, but also within areas under Israeli military control. So if you are a Palestinian-American and you want to go to Bethlehem or you want to go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem or from Beth 
from Hebron to uh, Tel Aviv, you're not allowed if you have an American passport. You have to get a special permit from the Israeli authorities. And all of this is a violation of the reciprocity idea. So as a result, um, the Israelis, uh, the, Israel, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, very supportive of the state of Israel, wants to give the Israelis a farewell gift. He's leaving in August. And so he is trying to um, find a way to get the Israelis to be approved. And one of the ways he's trying to do this is to provide what is called the trial period. So July 1st, the Israelis will be under trial for one month. If they pass this trial period, then they will get a permanent visa waiver without any way of checking whether after the end of the month so let me stop you. Let me stop you here because I want I want our uh, listeners and our audience to understand this. So if Israel behaves like an angel for thirty days, then this thing will go through. Yes, and you know the Americans might try to uh, pressure them, but you know what happens in Israel, in the U.S. Domestic powers once something is in, it's going to be very hard to take it out, unless there is legal. Uh, constitutional changes in Israel that stop the profiling, we will not, I don't believe in the uh, acting as angel in a trial period. This would be a waste of time and Israel will act in a nice way for 30 days and then once they have got the waiver, then they will go back to the profiling. I mean, you're using this as a, a I mean, this kind of precedent when you explain this you know, we can cite the example of, let's say, under the Trump administration moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Now you don't see a reversal by the Biden administration. Uh, we've seen also when the United States objected about the building of new settlements and then they get, the settlements get built and nothing happens. Well, we, we have a much bigger example, the uh, Oslo Accords, the 1993 uh, declaration of, of principles signed at the White House lawn with the U.S., uh, Bill Clinton overseeing the handshake between Arafat and Rabin. That was supposed to be a five-year transitional period. It's been nearly now 30 years. So what's happening? You know, once you start in the temporary phase in the Israel, with the state of Israel, it becomes permanent. There is no accountability. There is no way to force them to go back because there's political pressure, upcoming U.S. elections. You know, every two years there is a cycle. There's a congressional cycle and there is the midterm election and presidential election. And so they say, well, let's wait till after the elections. And basically a temporary plan becomes permanent. So you, you really believe that uh, the ambassador is trying to pull a fast one. I mean, I mean, that's what he's basically trying to do taking advantage of the, the timing of this. We are few, uh, we're about really about a year from major campaigning to the presidential elections and that Biden's hands are tied and he's not gonna take any, any major action towards Israel. Look, um, let's stay on the waiver issue. The waiver issue, uh, uh, July 1st, they will start, stop profiling. This last week alone, 11 Americans were returned, were denied entry. So it's not, there is no change of attitude. The Israelis have not, you know, become uh, converted to the need to treat Americans with equality. They're only doing this as, as you said, you know, they're going to act as angels for 30 days 
until they get the waiver and then they'll go back to their uh, nasty deeds of profiling. Do we want uh, to have Palestinians, Americans being able to travel to Jerusalem without problems? Yes. Even for 30 days, that's very nice. It's a very good, that's, that's normal that an American should be able to travel as an American anywhere he wants. And in a country that is the biggest uh, recipient of U.S. American taxpayer money. So that's true. But if this is done as a gimmick so that they can get, you know, can say, look, I got you the waiver and all that. It's a very bad thing. And the Americans should not give the Israelis any advantage to any other country. No other country has been given this trial period that the Israelis are getting. They need to change their act and prove it over a long period of time, and then they can apply for the waiver. And okay, good. Why not? I, I want to add that uh, Palestinians are not the only ones targeted. Anti-apartheid and anti-Zionist advocates, increasing numbers of them are Jewish, undergo the same discrimination. Some have been deported as well. We're talking about uh, political ideology. You mentioned that this could cause other countries to treat you as citizens the same way. Can you expand on this? Well, I think if the Americans allow this trial period and if the trial period ends and the Israelis go back to their profiling, this would legitimize profiling. It would give a green light. It would give uh, countries the right to say, look, Israel has uh, discriminated against uh, Palestinian Americans. We, the Chinese, want to discriminate against, uh, you know, people who support Tibet in uh, Americans. Or every country has its own uh, long list of, of uh, causes, and they will start separating Americans of different descent based on their political agenda. This is totally in violation of international law. It's also in violation of what America stands for, which is equality. And so, uh, unfortunately, um, all this is being pushed aside so that the Tom Dines, the uh, U.S. ambassador, can leave his post with a gift to the Israelis. So what's the process in, uh, for this approval? I mean, most Americans, and I'm, I'm going to be frank, they don't even know about this, they, 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 or they couldn't care less, or maybe they'll care if, if, if they know about it. And, and so this can just go through, and most Americans don't, don't realize that, that this is happening. Yeah, I mean, the waiver, U.S. waiver uh, conditions are very uh, transparent. All you have to do is put U.S. waiver conditions, and you can find out there are five or six conditions. There has to be security cooperation, information cooperation. Uh, as I said, the 3% minimum, uh, maximum uh, return reciprocity. These are very transparent conditions that are applied to all the countries. Yes, most Americans don't know about it, and uh, but the State Department has to apply the law to everybody, and if they uh, don't, then people can sue the U.S. government for violating its own laws, and a lot of American Arab-American organizations have met with the State Department, and they repeated what I said, that they have to treat everybody the same. No discrimination, whether it's in if for Americans living in the Palestinian areas under Israeli control, Americans arriving at, at Israeli uh, international borders, Americans arriving at checkpoints within the occupied territories, all these things have to be clearly guaranteed that there will not be discrimination regardless of your 
ethnic background, religious background, color of your skin, or your thoughts. Now, I don't know if you know about this, Ajamal, I'm sure you know. There is a law in Israel that says if you express support to the boycott, the investment, and sanctions policy, the BDS, right. Israel is obliged not to allow you in. So all they have to do is see, you know, as I said in my article, somebody from the Bible Belt who wants to put like on a BDS post, they can say, look, you've supported the BDS by putting like on Facebook, we're turning you back. And so this is a law in Israel. It's the law of the land. Now, whether they turn a blind eye on it or not, I don't know. But how can they allow uh, the law to stay on the books while saying, okay, we're in the trial period, we're not going to discriminate. But the law has not been rescinded. The law continues. So there is a there is a um, inherent a radical problem that they have to deal with, and it's legislative, it's security-related, and it's policy-related. If they're willing to make genuine changes to the laws and to the practice for a period that is not more longer than one month, then, okay, fine, they can have their waiver. But other than that, they should not be given any special status. You've mentioned a pushback by Arab-American organizations. Do you have an idea how have they been received? I mean, during their meetings with the State Department, have they met with Secretary Blinken, for, for example? And, uh, and what was the reaction? I'm not sure. Uh, I know that... Uh, all major American, Arab American, Arab uh, American Muslim organizations involved were um, in a meeting at the State Department uh, with the key people who are involved in this issue of the waiver, and they made their position very clear. I know that the um, Arab American Institute issued a statement. Uh, I just saw it uh, about this issue. I think it's going to be uh, publicly discussed. Uh, I think my article is being uh, circulated in many locations. So, uh, you know, we don't know uh, what exactly is the arrangement, what are the promises, what's behind the trial period, uh, what are the guarantees that uh, the trial period uh, record will continue after uh, a waiver if, if they are successful is given. These are a lot of the questions, and I haven't seen much transparency from the U.S. government. The only person who's been reporting somewhat on it uh, has been, you know, few and far in between times of Israel, and I wrote something about it. But we haven't seen a lot of discussion on the record on this issue. The articles in Al Jazeera, uh, published June 14th, the U.S. should not give up protecting its own citizens just to present another political gift to the Israeli government by Daoud Kutab. What's uh, your thoughts about Arab Americans, uh, our average um, uh, listeners? I mean, um, how helpful it is, is it to, to write to the State Department to express it? Absolutely. You know, I, I write, I start the article with an anecdote of my cousins because uh, I say they always come uh, to Jordan rather than to uh, the Lod Tel, Tel Aviv airport. Because if they're turned back at the airport, they have to go all the, all the way back to the U.S. Or if they come on the King Hussein Bridge, they can be turned back and stay with the relatives. They also often keep their phones in Jordan because they know that their phones might be confiscated. And they will be asked to give their password and look at their social media. But I think the funniest part is the books and the, the deck of cards. <laughs> because they actually bring with them extra books and decks of cards. 
because they know they'll be asked to wait for hours. And so instead of letting the Israelis have the upper hand and feel like they're you know, controlling them, they play cards, they have fun, they don't let the occupiers affect their, their mentality. And I think that's a very nice kind of way. And my advice to people is come via King Hussein Bridge, spend time with your relatives in Jordan, have some hummus at uh, Hashem's in Knafe, uh, whatever, downtown, and then go to the bridge, bring your cards, bring a book, bring a, a game for your children so they don't get bored. And and if you come after July, probably they'll let you in quickly because they're going to be really nice. <laughs> but always come through with the King Hussein Bridge. That's my advice. It's still crazy to think that your family has to strategize how make to make best of what can be hours of waiting at the border or to minimize their losses if they are turned back. Uh, no, what's 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 amazing is that the American government has been silent on discrimination. Whereas if Jews are discriminated against, they're anti-Semitic and so on. But when Arabs are being discriminated against by so so-called Jewish state, oh, that's a sovereign decision of a sovereign country. Come on, baloney! You know they're getting so much money from taxpayers, and Americans can do a lot to change that policy if they put their head to it. Do we have any stats on the number of complaints that? Uh, the U.S. receives every year or throughout the past. No, I don't know the number, but but the I know that the uh, file, the archives of the State Department is full of complaints. Every time I complain, they said, "You're not the first. We've heard this before." They always say that they've heard many complaints, but there is nothing we can do. They always say, "Well, there's nothing we can do." Well, then 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 they can do something: is to deny this visa waiver because. Or, or 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 make serious conditions. I mean, they can force the Israelis to change the BDS law. They can force them to actually issue a policy statement that they will no longer profile people. If you're leaving, if you're entering, they profile you because you're Arab American, because you're Palestinian, because you're Muslim, because you come from an Asian country, because you look black, whatever. That is against American uh, ethos, against policy, and they should not be allowed to do that. Why is it so important for Israel to get the visa waiver, considering many carry secondary passports like Actually, U.S. passports? Very, it's a very good question. And my information is that there's about a million Israelis living in the U.S. illegally. Uh, and because they are living illegally, they cannot come back. Because if they come back, they will never be allowed in. But if there is a waiver, then many of them will come back, some might stay, and then you know, they, because they know that they can always go to, uh, to the U.S. And so it's actually a very sinister uh, decision by the state of Israel to bring back some of the Israelis that have left Israel and so that they can come and back and live in Israel. It's a very sinister uh, decision. So how to, how to deal, okay, considering Israel is in control of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and I'm talking about the West Bank, Gaza, etc., so if the United States uh, approves the visa waiver to Israelis, assuming, what happens to uh, Palestinians with the Jerusalem IDs or, uh, or Palestinians in the West Bank? Uh, are they also going to get a visa? They will, no, not only they're going to need a visa, but they will, uh, Americans living in Hebron or Nablus who want to go and pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now need a permit from the Israelis, that supposedly when this is passed, at least during the trial period, they will no longer need a permit. Palestinians 
Americans are not allowed to use the airport unless they get a special permit. Supposedly, under this, they will not. Now, there's 500 Americans living in Gaza. Apparently, the trial period will not include them. So they will not be given a waiver to travel to Ben-Gurion and travel through that way. So that's what applies to American Palestinians. Now, does the waiver apply to Palestinians? No. There's no talk about that. Uh, Israel does not represent them, and certainly uh, the Israelis will not uh, push for that. And the Palestinians have their own problems. I don't think they're going to be asking for a waiver from the Americans. Dawood Kutab, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Alan. That's the voice in the face of Dawood Kutab, who's discussing his recent article in Al Jazeera. He made the argument, Jamal, that the United States should not grant Israeli citizens visa waivers to the U.S. due to their discrimination and mistreatment of Palestinian Americans, which has never changed. Now, the United States has been talking out of both sides of its mouth. They claim that they're putting pressure on the uh, apartheid government of Israel to treat Palestinian Americans in the same way. But they've never done that, and uh, Dawood uh, articulates that very clearly. Well, you know, just this is uh, not a new story. I mean, the new no. the, the new story is that something is going to happen in July, which means there is a trial period for this visa waiver program. And, and Dawood uh, articulates the reasons behind it because you have a very pro- Israeli uh, ambassador in 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 Jerusalem and uh, Tom Nides who has been pushing to grant this as as his parting gift actually he's leaving this is his parting gift so Israel will get this privilege that's granted to few countries around the globe who who meet a certain criteria which Israel does not meet and and then you know it's a trial period for 30 days but then Israel can act perfect for 30 days, and then afterwards they go back to their old habits, denying Palestinian Americans entry, interrogations, harassment, and so forth, and the United States is not going to reverse this decision because the U.S. as a precedent never reversing any decision that it grants to Israel. We've never lowered financial aid to Israel, for example. We've never punished Israel because... They built more settlements, you know, we've made uh, threats and all kinds of things, but nevertheless, uh, they get away with murder and, and they actually got away with murder, the killing of Shirin Abu Akli and the uh, Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akli and the killing of uh, a Palestinian-American uh, uh, 78-year-old man. And what do we receive in return they just they just recently announced that they're going to give a slap on the wrist to those uh, responsible for the murder and recently of course they killed the two-year-old and so forth so it's a very dangerous precedent uh, just uh, despite all these uh, israel's egregious record discriminating against americans um, if we know the Biden administration is going to go ahead with it, and that's that's very sad. Uh, and I think a lot of Americans should write the State Department. A lot of Arab Americans should write the State Department because Israel does not meet that criteria. 
Well, you're exactly right, Jamal. And this, we've been speaking about this for many, many months and, and years now, speaking about how painfully pro-Israel the Biden administration has been and continues to be. I mean, in the intro, I spoke about uh, you know, the apartheid state and Benjamin Netanyahu going forward with these judicial reforms, which have been condemned by the United States and the world community. The announcement of 4,000 new tenders for illegal colonial settlements in the West Bank. Now this we, uh, visa waiver program, it seems, Jamal, on the face of it, that the Israeli government is being rewarded for its bad behavior by the Biden administration. Um this is really, really bad. And uh, we thought that the Trump administration, when it opened up the U.S. embassy, moved it to Jerusalem. That was a bad move. I, I kind of think that the Biden administration, with all of these moves and letting Israel literally and figuratively get away with murder, Jamal, is actually worse in some ways in terms of their foreign policy moves against the apartheid state. They're letting them do whatever they want. Well, I mean, there's a lot of danger in this. And this is not... Uh, just affecting Arab Arab Americans. It's affecting, no. of course, Americans in general because including Jewish Americans who get denied for the simple fact of uh, posting something on Facebook that they criticize the Netanyahu government or calling Israel an apartheid state, which it ha which it is because it has been ident identified as such by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International, by its own human rights organization, Beth Salem and, and others. And they've been and they've been doing this, but also just what's also dangerous about this, it sets a precedence for other countries to to differentiate between Americans. You know, there is a campaign saying treat right. blue is blue, meaning your blue passport is is all the same, but it's not. Your it's blue not. American passport is not treated equally. So if you are, for example, if we had an agreement, uh, well. Let's say uh, with, I'm just making the, this example, uh, China, for example, and then you get, a, you're a Chinese American and you're criticizing, you know, and you get a visa to go to China as an American because we have diplomatic relations with China, believe it or not, regardless of all the rhetoric. But if you are a uh, Chinese American and, you're, uh, and, you, and you criticize the Chinese government, then they'll deny you a visa, you know? So, so that opens the door for any country to differentiate between American citizens. And maybe this is a far stretch because we have to go back to reciprocity because the visa waiver program, most European countries have that, or, or EU, I should say, EU countries, they can travel to the United States. Automatically, they get granted 90 days. But let's say, you know, you're you criticize the British government on its position of um, Ireland, Northern Ireland, you know. Would that give the British government an excuse to deny you entry? And, and that's not an EU member, but a European country and a, and a, right. and a close right. ally to deny you entry, you know. So well, that's, that's the precedent that uh, this ambassador, uh, Tom Nides, will, will uh, create. And incidentally, I mean, what a coincidence that they're pushing through with this in July when Tom Nides is departing his post in go in August. What a coincidence! Yeah, uh, it's some coincidence, Jamal. And I think that uh, uh, you know, in, and I keep saying this is that an apartheid state like Israel is being rewarded for its bad behavior. 
the behavior is bad, creating more illegal settlements, uh, going through with these kind of uh, really horrific judicial uh, changes in their judiciary, which have been condemned by everybody. And yet the United States continues to reward this apartheid state. I mean, where is Hakeem Jeffries? Where is the progressive element of the Democratic Party? And we have a Democrat in, in the White House right now, and we hear nothing but positive accolades for the apartheid state. They're literally getting away with murder. So it's a very sad day. It's a very disturbing day. And I think, as you rightfully point out, the implications of this are not just for Palestinian Americans, but for Americans traveling to these countries with reciprocity that may have critical views of the receiving countries. So stay tuned. We're going to follow this story very, very carefully. Moving on to the next uh, story, which... Uh, it's, it's an incredible story, Jamal. It's an incredible story. It's, uh, I mean, many people reported on this, but now, in essence, now there is an entire book written about it by a very yeah. credible uh, historian, British-Israeli historian, uh, Avi Schleim, who, who claims in a new memoir that Mossad carried out bombings to drive Jews out of Iraq and hasten their transfer to Israel. And I think this is very important, and I tell you why it's very important. This, this story, of course, Arab media has reported on this and other uh, credible media outlets. They, they've you know, written about this, they've reported uh, about this, not, not only, and, and in his particular case, he's, he's, focused on, uh, he's focusing on his homeland, and original homeland, which is Iraq. He's an Iraqi Jew. Right. And uh, at the, before 1948, I think Iraq had more than 130,000 uh, Jews living there, and more than 110,000 ended up leaving the country. But also we heard similar stories that about this in uh, Morocco and in, in Tunisia and, and, and in Algeria where uh, the Zionists at the time were spreading fear amongst uh, Jewish Arabs who are uh, referred to as Mizrahi or Mizrahim uh, that they were under threat and they must leave and come to the newly created uh, state and uh, and also spreading fear amongst Arabs that, that these uh, Jews who are Arabs, just like Christian Arabs, Muslim Arabs, and whatever, they have become now a fifth column. Almost a, a chapter taking, uh, taken from colonial uh, uh, Britain in India, you know, spreading mistrust and, and hatred between Muslims and Hindus and so forth. So... Uh, we know about this. Many people know about this, but the general public does not know about it. And and so now this is a well-researched book. It's written in a memoir uh, format because he talks about his own family. Right. That lived there for generations. And then he talks about, you know, the Jews in Iraq, you know, they can trace their their history to 2,000 years and, and, and so forth in, in, in that region of the world. And that his family lived there. They, um, in fact, they were very well-to-do. They were prospering. His parents had, uh, they knew who's who in, in, in the Iraqi government and talking about, you know, lavish, I wouldn't say too much of a lavish lifestyle, but a comfortable lifestyle where they've had also 
um, events where they've had ministers in the government come to their home and so forth. Well, I was going to say, and a safe lifestyle. And a safe, a very safe lifestyle, which was reflective uh, of, of most of the, the Jews that who lived in the country. And then these incidents started to happen, bombings and so forth, spreading fear, and then his parents ended. And he was five-year-old. He was born in 1945. So he didn't witness a lot of this. He's just going through basically uh, personal history and, and uh, interviews and so forth. And then his parents ended up in, in Israel, which not too many people talk about that. Uh, but the uh, the Jews who went to Israel, the Mizrahis who went to Israel, were, were treated like, I want to say, even second-class citizens, maybe third-class citizens. They were put in shanty towns and discriminated uh, against in uh, by the Ashkenazis who were in control in, in that country. Uh, the situation has changed now, but that's well documented amongst uh, Mizrahis themselves. They'll tell you about this. And then, of course, his father tried to have a business there, failed, ended up not right. having any work. His mother ended up who was basically uh, well taking care of housewife. She had to go and work as a telephone operator. His, fam his family divorced. And, uh, you know... If you talk to many of the Iraqi Jews, especially the elderly, they lament about their life, whether it be it in Iraq or Syria and so, so on. But, but most importantly, he confirms through archived material from now under Israel and going back to the terrorist gangs that uh, were in control, the Irgun and the Haganah and, and, and others, uh, communications about the orders, telling them what to do, giving their agents orders, you know, why don't you put a bomb in, in, in that restaurant or that movie theater and blame it on the, on the Muslims or blame it on the Arabs and so forth. So that's well documented. And I just quickly will say why it is very important because now Israel tried to make the claim that we're no longer an Ashkenazi majority, um, and uh, when it when the issue comes, uh, talking to 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 discuss the, uh, the right of return of uh, Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed, they'll say, "Well, eight hundred thousand Jews were also ethnically cleansed from Arab countries." That's so part of the fake like, claim, that's right? The, that's the, that's the claim, like uh, you know. There's nothing we can do about reparation of Palestinians because uh, Jews were ethnically claimed, but uh, ethnically cleansed, but they don't say why did they leave and who was behind that. Exactly, exactly. I, I don't know if this story is going to get much traction in the United States or, or I mean, it's kind of a well-known It might even be true that most Israelis know about this. You know, because it's you know it's it's well it's well kind of known. This book seems to be written for another audience, don't you think, Jamal? I mean, is this going to get much traction anywhere else? Well, I think it's an important and significant book because it's written by a credible historian. Of yeah. course, of course, uh, the uh, Hasbaristas will try to discredit him just like they try to discredit uh, others uh, like Ilan Pape, who exposed the truth about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in his book. The ethnic, ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And the funny thing about this, Jess, 
is most of the supporting evidence comes from Israeli archives. You know, what do you get? How are they going to dispute? How are they going to dispute? Yeah, them? but they, they'll dispute it. Uh, they'll make up lies. Uh, self-hating Jew label starts fl uh, flying around and and so forth. Uh, but it seems uh, I've I've read the reviews, uh, so I have to admit I haven't read uh, the entire book. I've read some reviews, I've read some articles, and we hope to get uh, uh, on this uh, on this show uh, Avi Schleim. So we're gonna actually reach out to him and see if he'll, he'll come and talk. You know, so I'm gonna get a copy, uh, and then we try to bring him on the show because. He's not basing it on anecdotes, you know. This, these are documentation. There's also his own history and family's history, along with supporting evidence. Yeah, it's pretty compelling. Um, almost as compelling as the national food of an apartheid state, Jamal. I mean, can you think of anything else? When you think of colonizers and you think of what they colonize, it's not just the land. They colonized, they had tried to colonize the culture. And there's been this attempt over the decades, in addition to colonizing historic Palestine and, you know, creating this settler colonial state, of trying to take the indigenous food of Palestine and kind of incorporate it into this crazy myth about the national food of an apartheid. It's kind of crazy, Jamal. Well, let's decipher what you're trying to say just because uh, for our audience who are not familiar, but the past week or so, Israel has celebrated its National Food Day, and its National Food Day happens to be falafel. So uh, we've been seeing a lot of uh, posts on social media uh, from actually embassies. We're not talking about individuals and many of them, but also from official Israeli government posts, including uh, the post I actually posted uh, on my uh, Twitter and Facebook page came, I think, from the Canadian, the Israeli-Canadian right. embassy. Right. And then they have the falafel with the Israeli flag planted all over it and, like, you know, it's, uh, uh, celebrating our National Food Day, falafel, etc. So this might sound funny for... Uh, it's not. It's listeners. not funny. But, it's not uh, you know, and of course, they claim that they've invented hummus and others. Uh, of course, they say hummus, not hummus. But anyway, <laughs> and this connects to the story we were talking about earlier about uh, the book, because, again, that addresses the whole Mizrahi right. issue. Because what uh, the Israelis will say now when confronted with, with this, when they say, hey, come on, man. Falafel is Arabic. I'm not going to say Palestinian because the Lebanese have falafel, the Syrians have falafel, the Egyptians claim to be the originators of falafel, but nevertheless, this is a Levantine dish and maybe some Egyptian, the Egyptian falafel tahmiyah is made with fava bean instead of hummus, but it's the same concept. What are you talking about? And and I'm, and, and I made a comment which kind of, kind of people were like posting all kinds of comments about it. And I said, I'm so uh, blessed to have learned how to enjoy falafel from uh, colonial settlers from Poland, Russia, <laughs> Ukraine, and so forth. You know, and then, of course, the Hasbaristas went crazy. Oh, you, you know, a lot of Israelis, and that's what they, when they're confronted, they'll say that, right. um, they, that uh, there is, uh, m many Israelis are Mizrahim or Jewish people from Middle Eastern. 
and North African ancestry, and that food is part of their culture. So they, in other words, they can claim falafel, they can claim hummus, and they claim, you know, like I'm sure he went to the markets to uh, your favorite store, but we eat uh, uh, all foods or whatever. He saw Israeli couscous, you know, and so forth. Yeah, but we're in America, I eat Italian food. People in the United States don't claim Italian food is American. They say it's Italian food. We eat Chinese food. We don't say this is American food. Yeah, there are a lot of Chinese immigrants in the United States, a lot of Mexican food. I mean, Mexican food is part of maybe we eat Mexican food in California at least once a week. We don't say this is American food. It's such a joke. It's, it's like saying it's, it's Mexican food, even though it was brought to this country by Mexicans, Mexican immigrants, by Chinese immigrants, and so forth. You don't go and hang your flag on it and claim that it is your national food. And let me just say one one thing is, well, if they want to play this game, I'm going to play another game, Jess. Yeah? And my game is saying, okay, I guarantee you there is over a million to maybe a million and a half, or it could be even two million of the Ashkenazi Jews who immigrated to Israel. They originate from Russia and Poland. I never I never see them bragging about the piroshki and saying the piroshki is an Israeli <laughs> Israeli dish or the pirogi, you know, whatever, whether you're- Why, why isn't the piroshki the national food of Israel? It, yeah, they don't say that. They don't say the piroshki, they don't say the pirogi, whatever. They, they somehow- because colonizers like to steal your culture, your land, and your cuisine. That's the simple answer. Well, the simple answer is exactly right, but I'll add a little twist to it, Jamal. It has profound economic benefits to the apartheid state and the Hasbaristas and the colonialists who market Arab food, indigenous Arab food, here in the United States and all over the world as and you said it, Israeli couscous, Israeli hummus, Israeli... Fl- I mean, it's it, the craziness behind this and the economic benefit that it brings to these colonizers is rather extreme, and it needs to be called out. We're, we're making light of it now, Jamal, but it has some really deep, dark, not just colonial roots, but uh, economically, I mean, it's basically having a profound economic benefit I mean, at the I same mean, time. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, they're pushing the envelope too much. I mean, now we see Palestinian tatris, you know, embroidery also claimed by Israeli fashion designers. I, I, I see on, on cooking shows, Israeli chefs claiming that what they're cooking, they're cooking like maklube, and we jump there and claiming this is Israeli food. Musabba oh has God. Israeli food. It's not like, I mean, I make the joke, it's falafel, because everybody eats falafel. Falafel is like the, uh, right. I guess, the Mexican taco for, for Palestinians. I mean, this is like our taco, which is the falafel. Everyone eats a falafel. Everyone can afford eating a falafel. Everyone loves the falafel. And they hone on, the, on this one and make it their national food. Well, it's part of the colonial mindset, Jamal. We're, we, I, I, we're going to confront this every time we see it. It's not a national food. It's, it's stolen like everything else the apartheid state has done. Appropriation. Exactly. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, 
arabtalkradio.com to download the latest shows and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.